Hello everyone. Thanks for joining us here on Origins and thanks for bearing with us as we navigated a brief hiatus. We've been hard at work lining up new guests, new ideas to explore, and new mindsets to talk about. We have an amazing set of guests coming up for you. We have someone who's a true trailblazer and innovator of NASA science. We have a CEO of one of the most interesting discovery-oriented institutions and conversations with individuals and leaders across the spectrum of science, art, engineering, and design. We look forward to bringing those to you. In the meantime, enjoy the conversation today. Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes, to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives, and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns to provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Okay, coming to you today from downtown Boulder, Colorado at the Southwest Research Institute where I'm sitting with one of the most original thinkers in the field of space physics, Andres Munoz Jaramillo. Andres has dedicated much of his life to unlocking the secrets of the sun and transforming those discoveries into profound knowledge about and predictions of solar activity. He began his trajectory in Bogota, Colombia, studying electrical engineering and physics. His passions led him to Montana State University in 2004, where he embraced his love of space and the solar system. His passions manifested in novel discovery about the sun, which has become a focus of his research. That work received wide recognition and acclaim, earning him a long list of accolades, including a national award from the American Geophysical Union given to the best PhD dissertation in space physics research in 2011, during that graduate work at Montana State University. Andre's path beyond Montana has been decidedly diverse, leading him to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cal Berkeley and Stanford in California, back to the East Coast at Georgia State University, and finally here to the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado. Everywhere Andres goes, he leaves behind a trail of lasting and fascinating new knowledge, but particularly close to my heart, based on my own interactions with him, rich relationships, and a contagious sense of selflessness. Andres continued his pioneering work here in Boulder, Colorado, producing not only cutting-edge scientific research that weaves in innovation from the field of machine learning, but also new ways of communicating those findings with data visualization and outreach activities. We all have much to learn from Andres, so it is my distinct pleasure to have him on Origins today. Andres, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for doing this. Oh my gosh, Ryan, those introductions of you are always... <laughs> when I hear your podcasts, 
I'm like, man, how can you be on that on the end of such an introduction and not blush? <laughs> <laughs> it's well deserved on your part. So it really is nice, nice to sit down with you. So thanks for doing this. Thank you. So Andres, you once hosted a website, a small trip through Colombian music. I want to know what is what is that. So when I was doing my, uh, I'm a flute player. A flute player, okay. Yeah. And when I was doing my PhD, I joined the flute choir of the University of, of Montana State University. Okay. And one day, my 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 the, my professor said, "Why don't you give us a talk about Colombian music with a focus on on flutes, and um, and just for the choir?" And so I said, "Okay, sure, fine, I'll do this." And I went online. And I just couldn't find much material, if at all, about Colombian music. It was very scattered. There was not like a place where... So I did the presentation. The, the, the choir loved it. So they asked me to give it to the entire music department. And I did. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I can just put this into a web page in case someone is trying to do something like it. Um, and so I made this... What, this is one of my first web pages. You can see this. Uh, it's very cute. Oh, it's uh, amazing. Tiled backgrounds. <laughs> a really hard color palette. Anyway. Um, uh, it's cool. It's cool to see the, the evolution of Andres through your websites. Uh, you yes. These awesome websites. Yeah. And, uh, and the one you have now, I really love. It's just uh, it's an amazing one with, with your data visualizations, which, which I, I do want to get into. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know, you know, very, from the very beginning, even before your Montana State research, uh, what inspired you? What was what were you like as a kid? What what got you into what you love now? I would say Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Okay, the TV show. The TV show first. Okay. So when I was a kid, I remember once changing channels, and then I stumbled into it. I didn't know it existed, and I saw this guy walking on a spaceship. He will walk. This, he will walk to the sh to the shore of the ocean and he will say this very poetic thing that I always like inspire me like we're here at the shores of the cosmic ocean and he will take a dandelion and then he will just blow on it and it was a spaceship uh, and then in the next uh, cut he will he was inside this super nice clean and as, as like a uh, clean aesthetics spaceship with amazing pictures of nebulae and galaxies and things on the on the floor and i was like oh my god this guy i i was very little so i thought he was actually there like uh transported you yeah i thought he was actually traveling through the cosmos and i really honestly thought that was true and i was so it was so inspiring and then i was just i was just hooked but then i started and I, and, I, and I grew up with it, so I, first it was just the show and how visually striking it was. So I asked my parents as a Christmas present, the book. But the book, I mean, I just, I just, I was only starting to read. I couldn't read a book with that much text. So I was just looking at the pictures. Then I watched this, this show was rerun every year, so... I would watch it and watch it, and every time I would, it would make more sense to me. Um, and eventually one day I was able to read the book when I was a teenager. So I had that book, still, still, still back home, um, sitting in my, in my 
books bookshelf for years until I was able to finally read it. But then I read it, and it was mind blowing. And so, and then eventually one day when I was in high school, I was in a spiritual retreat, and I was in the warmlands of Colombia, lying on my back beside a swimming pool with a friend, looking at the stars, and I just started talking about what the stars were, everything that I had learned through Cosmos. And uh, he was like so inspired. And then he went to his own bookshelf and found all these books about physics. And we became fast friends. Like uh, I have not been a friend of him before. And we started like uh, our two people book club where he will read a book and I will about physics and I will read another then we will trade, and then we will discuss them. Oh, wow. Uh, and so then, and so we, we developed this reputation in high school as the crazy physicists, kind of. Uh, and so there was a time for us to choose universities. And in Colombia, in Bogota, there are many universities that you can go to. Most people actually stay in their hometowns and go to the university in their hometown. Um, so schools do these visits. There's like a kind of like here, I guess, where prospective students come to a university um, and have a tour around. And they needed two people. They needed someone that could represent our school. Everyone wanted to do economics or engineering, and they needed two people to go to the physics department. So, <laughs> so who do we ask? That's so, a no uh, you yeah, me. exactly. It was me and my friend. Obvious obvious choice and so we went there and I was like ah maybe I can do physics and my parents were not crazy about this because in Colombia it's like what are you going to do with physics are you going to start to that right or and so I was kind of like able to negotiate me joining the physics department if I could do both engineering and physics okay so they wanted you to be an engineer yes and they were fine with me having a degree in physics as long as I finish my degree in engineering. Interesting. And so that's that's why am I both a physicist and an engineer? Yeah, I love that. I, I'm fascinated by the idea of material coming to us and being the right material at the right time for what you know what lens we have on life at that moment. Um, and and so I'm I'm curious about this this spiritual retreat that you were on with with your friend that kind of was a pivotal moment in developing your path towards physics and uh, can you explain a little bit about this spiritual retreat what, how, what kind of mindset were you in that allowed you to look at the stars and and make this connection between the cosmos and, and what you might want to do so I when I'm Catholic and okay. I grew up in a very religious family and went to Catholic school and uh, every year you have this kind of every year during the entire school from first grade to the final grade in, in Colombia's 11th grade uh, the last year you do these retreats when you're little they tend to be they're always like a day trip kind of thing and they follow certain this school is a Jesuit school and the Jesuit founder Ignacio de Loyola I don't know what's the name in in, uh, in, in English Ignatius Anyway, he's a Spanish. He's a, he was a Spanish. Uh, so Ignacio de Loyola, his his name, he had this profound spiritual experience after being like in complete solitude 
for uh, I think a full month. So he, he was kind of like following his spiritual path. He basically became a hermit for 30 days and had like an incredible ex- spiritual uh, experience. And that led him to found the Jesuits, the, the Jesuit company. And uh, so, so in a Jesuit school, you, you do things like that, inspired by that. And a huge part of it is silence. You're, so, you're in a full Jesuit retreat, you're in complete silence. You have like, there is no silence and you're like all the time talking about, thinking about yourself and things like that. But you only do this in a, a very small scale when you're little. And it's only on your last year when the, and your last years, when this actually takes over the course of several days. In my school, at least, mm-hmm. and so we were in the middle of that, where you're kind of reflecting on, on your life. And it's it's a meditative. It's uh, a very highly meditative thing, and we actually had an exercise where we were supposed to find a place in complete solitude and think in silence. But I ran into my friends, and instead of doing the exercise, we talk about physics. <laughs> so, I guess. I mean, I would say, yeah, that the retreat and everything does put you in a kind of like introspective mood. But I, by talking about my friend, about this, with my friend about the stars, I deviated from what we were supposed to do. I, I, it's interesting to hear how different people create that space to listen to themselves. Uh, personally, I, I find that writing, having a writing practice has been really helpful for me to kind of understand my own thinking. And, and um, have you have you taken that those experiences um, at, from from your childhood, and has that grown into a practice in your adult life? Uh, do you have a, a way of creating that that silence and that space for you to to kind of think about your own your own thinking? So for me, I am I am a person that that does these things at a very instinct instinctive level. Mm. So it's not, it, it, all this is happening at a, le, at a level at which I am not fully cognizant. Um, and it is through conversations. When I'm having conversations that things like crystallize. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, what helps is co- collaborating with people um, and discussing my experiences with others that these things coming to focus and then I'm I'm like oh that makes so much sense because it's something that has been going in the back of my mind for some time and then I finally when I when I put it in the spoken word I, I, it's like I named it I name it and once I name it I understand it and it becomes part of what I'm of what I do and so that's kind of so it's it's a strange thing because it happens when I'm driving in the car when I have like downtime in which I am not working is where my brain is kind of like jumping from the different things that are happening and then when I have a conversation oftentimes with my wife uh, but it could be with with a colleague it could be right now as we speak uh, I kind of like is like oh yeah I have always kind of known this or. This has been simmering inside me, and now it has a. I put it in words. Can you think of a, a specific example, of a time when that happened? Yes. So, so this year I'm part of the Frontier Development Laboratory, 
Uh, and and we, we've talked about this before on the show, but uh, I, I'll put another link in the show notes. It's a it's a NASA program, or maybe maybe you want to explain just high level of what Frontier Development Laboratory is. It's a, it's an eight week program that aims to bring a team of inter, people with very different expertises and and fuse them into a team that can tackle challenges that have not been tackled in a traditional setting, that has either have not been tackled or people have not been able to tackle them in a traditional setting, um, in which like research setting. These problems are all NASA problems, so they are relevant to NASA as, a, as an agency. Um, and the, the, the common thread is that on the, the idea is to solve them using machine learning. Specifically, there is a very strong emphasis on using deep learning. And so for this purpose, the FDL is a nexus between NASA needs and resources from the private enterprise, so Google, Intel, IBM, um, they provide resources. Um, the participants apply, the mentors come volunteer, and and uh, NASA approves the problems. And then you have eight weeks to basically push this as hard as you can. And we're talking about the most profound problems in space science and in space in general that exist you know it's people putting these out there as kind of these blue sky if we wouldn't it be great if we could solve these and, and everyone has thought that that's an impossible thing with right now that's what a frontier development lab is tackling yes so, exactly so i'm interested to know how this how this uh this example of uh, of how you something emerged from having conversations and collaborations so the the one of the biggest challenges when you have an fdl team there are many challenges actually um, and the, but I have done this for three years, and I think I understand what makes a team fail. And the obvious thing that you always think is uh, that the problems are problems of expertise. But in reality, that is not at all the case, because the pool of applicants is pretty good. So you can almost pick at random, and it will be pretty amazing people. What brings an FDL team down every time, or what makes an FDL team trip, is social interactions. And the teams greatly benefit from having a mentor that understands this. And when I was going to do this year's FDL team, I was trying to understand what is the best way of fusing these four strangers into a powerhouse. And the moment of revelation came. So I tried to find solutions and I actually, my wife has always been a huge inspiration for me for these things. She's starting a company and she's very much into the entrepreneur entrepreneurship world and, and how how people, there is a collective of people that obsess on the problem, how do you help a business succeed as quickly as possible? And how do you identify whether an idea is 
a potential commercial success? Or how do you change it so that it is? And it's a very difficult problem because it involves both understanding your users, your customers, and understanding their needs. And most the most powerful ideas are actually needs that they users themselves, the customers themselves don't even know uh, exist. And then you also need to pull a team of people into your startup that somehow are able to work together, potentially coming from, uh, in a small business at the beginning, you can have very different or incomplete expertise. So I was, I was trying to understand how to, how to like empower an FDL team to achieve a challenge that, that is seemingly impossible to do in eight weeks. And I drew a lot of inspiration for that. And the, and the moment of, of realization, revelation for me is that as I have gone through this FDL and I have tested the approaches that people use to start companies, but in a scientific setting, I thought, man, you can really disrupt the way we do science. If you assemble a, a team and run it like as if all your challenges were FDL challenges, so you you could you could basically anyway there are many parts of this but you can basically I have this is my third year and I think it's been a really good run this time and I think I can basically take that assemble a team of four people with very diverse backgrounds fuse them into this powerhouse and basically just solve challenge after challenge um, just by following this kind of protocols. And so, and so anyway, that's basically where I am right now. And he was just talking about, and even just talking with you earlier, right? Is that how do you, you can learn a lot about getting very effective and impactful results in science if you treat if you treat your colleagues as customers and uh, and and this is particularly works for me because after i finished my phd my focus has been on fixing a lot of issues that data have in when you try to combine surveys so my my kind of scientific love is long-term science, how the sun has changed over the last 100 years or 50 years or 400 years. And there is no way of doing that if you don't find, figure out a way of piecing together data that we're taking with very different hardware that had very different goals that were taken by people that didn't understand the sun like we do. Um, and so what I've been discovering this FDL is that ultimately I need to piece together all these data sets in a way that people will use them. And so now I have customers and I can use all everything that people are doing for startups to basically think about how, what are the services that are most relevant for people, what is the format that people use who is willing to test our data and all these things. And, and of course, 
everything that has to do with the management of a very incredibly tense, so the, the FDL is a very stressful environment for many reasons. So how do you help your team cope? How do you manage their expectations? How do you manage their, their worries, their fears, their concerns? Um, but how you do this in a way that increases your leverage with your team, that only raises you, right, as a, their trust in you, their confidence in what you're doing, anything. It's a very important, interesting problem, but this has been a revelation for me this summer when I put all this and it's like, oh, wow, okay, there is something special here and we can change we can be very disruptive in a positive way yeah. um, and people will draw inspiration from this and maybe from here to 15 years there will be many teams around the country doing the same thing and solving science in a completely different way which by the way is actually way highly efficient so now you're really giving a lot of value to those taxpayer money right that's mm -hmm. so it's a win for everyone it's it's brilliant and you're it sounds to me like you're describing how you how your creative process has evolved and and how and now now it seems like you've come to this conclusion that borrowing from other fields you know your wife's knowledge of entrepreneurship and some of the practices in business transforming that and, and transferring that over to science and seeing the parallels and kind of amalgamating those two ideologies in a, in something that is new and so that, that, that seems like is, is what has become your creative process. And, and I'm always curious how people arrive at that. Uh, and, and how, you know, a, a lot of times creating something involves bringing something new. And, and that could be scary or it can be uncertain. And so often people are hesitant to move in that direction because it's, because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so I'm curious how you've come to this comfort or how you deal with the discomfort of trying to try trialing something new. And, and has it come from your career of doing a, a lot of different things? You know, so you started in, in engineering and physics and then it grew to solar studies. And then you started to embrace this machine learning, uh, these, these approaches to study solar physics. So how, how have you arrived at that kind of creative process of borrowing from other fields? So I think the FDL has been critical for me in that respect. Um, and because it has exposed me, it, well, two things. One is my wife, for sure, entrepreneurship and how people do the real pressure of starting a company, right? There is so much pressure because you basically jump, right, into the void. So I'm going to start a company <laughs> today, right? And you have to... You, your livelihood depends on your success and if you don't succeed so so there is an incredible amount of pressure to 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 minimize mistakes I think right you're going to do develop a product you're going to advertise it you're going to manufacture you're going to sell it all these things take an incredible amount of energy so you want to try to figure out ways of knowing ahead of time if it is worth spending six months of your effort and energy on a particular product that maybe actually at the end is not going to be solved. So people have developed a lot of protocols for and approaches to doing this. 
to understand needs, to understand your markets and things like that ahead of time. And actually, when you when you try to raise money from uh, investors, these people, that's kind of like what they're looking for. You need to understand your market, how many people are, have this need. Is it a one-time thing? Do they buy your, your product and then that's it? Uh, or do they need to pay for it every year? Uh, so you change your mindset. And yes, and so, so a huge part of these startup companies uh, and a, a huge part of what drives their thinking is also investors. Mm-hmm. And it's a very healthy kind of thing where you have this conversation because these people want to understand their potential and you want to understand your potential as well. And um, so, so that's one of the things that externally has driven me to, to kind of like this, um, basically the idea of taking something that already exists in another place and use it in, in yours. Because the and um, and on the other hand is the machine the, how the people in the machine learning world actually operate computer scientists is a very different way of doing science. They're they're extremely open and transparent. You publish your paper and you publish your code kind of thing. You even sometimes like you publish your paid data everything like someone could take what took you I don't know how many time. So years. Yes, exactly. In science, science people are extremely jealous of this. And they're like, okay, if I make this, if I give too much information, then these people are going to pick up everything that I did and run with it and basically leave me in the dust. Scoop your research. So so in science, typically people try and hold their products closer to themselves rather than making them open and available. Uh, So there's that difference. You know, I think you're starting to see some overlap between those ideologies, you know, more scientists embracing the openness that you see in, in like the machine learning community. Right. Um, but, but I'm interested that you, it's, it's almost, I've considered you a pioneer in using machine learning for space physics. Where, how did you originally come to that? So you're studying solar physics and, and how did you start to use machine learning? What got you interested in that? Which can you, can you think of a, mo- a moment or a period or maybe a mentor who, opened your eyes to that i was i have been trying to solve this mm, data mapping problem which is what i told you with you want to make historical observations even drawings for example that were made 200 years ago into something that someone today could use for science and in this circumstance i I don't i'm sorry to interrupt you you're talking about drawings of people looking through telescopes at the sun where our data of the sun used to be, people would draw from an image what the what was the sun. Yeah, they of the sun would point like. a telescope at the sun and then take the light and put it on a table, and put a piece of paper on that table and draw with pen with pen and paper. So those are the data that we originally had on the sun, and you're trying to stitch that together with, Mag- with maps of the magnetic field of the sun that are taken by spacecraft, for example. Absolutely, yeah. So there is a it is a huge difference between them. But there is at the same time a connection because the physics of the sun connects them. And traditional approaches for this kind of mapping have failed me. Have failed me for 10 years. Right? Have failed us. We cannot. We have not been able to stitch together not even magnetograms to magnetograms, for example, which are maps of the surface of the sun. The the way you measure the magnetic field of the sun has so much nuance and is an ill-posed problem 
that every decade we put on space or in the ground a new um, mapper of the magnetic field of the sun, a magnetograph, and that makes all the other ones before it obsolete. And we have not find a way, found a way of mapping one into the other in a way that can be used as if they were the same instrument. So we can study the sun over hundreds of years rather For example, than you know, with, single years. Exactly. Uh, and so... And so one day I was in San Francisco for uh, for the AGU, for the American Geophysical Union, the meeting of the American Geophysical Union. And Lika, which was also uninvited in your podcast, said, hey, Andres, are you doing anything today? And I said, today for lunch? And I said, no, why? Oh, I have this meeting in Adobe. Um, and I wanted to know if, you're coming, if you would like to come about this program, the Frontier Development Laboratory. And I was like, Sure, why not? <laughs> and so... This is the very beginning of the program, it sounds like. This was the second year of the second program. Year, okay. But the first year in which there was heliophysics. Hmm. And so... And so I started getting involved with the whole... I went there and I was interested. And kind of like it naturally happened where I was found myself on board. And I was like, okay, let's make this happen. And then I started being exposed as the, to the ideas of machine learning. And I fell in love, both in the way they do science um, and the potential of these algorithms to help us accomplish things that we have not been able to accomplish. And so, so anyway, so that is the other thing that I wanted to connect with your earlier questions. It turns out that the most successful products are not completely new ideas. The gr no, okay. Let me rephrase that. The majority of very successful commercial products are not original ideas from scratch. There are some, right? There are things like uh, didn't exist before and someone marketed them and then... But if you think, for example, the smartphone, right? Um, Palm had already things that look like our smartphones today, but they it had not been packaged and sell it in a way in the way Apple did with it, right? If you think about Xerox photocopies, right? The cameras we were have been already taking plates in images of objects and things like that way before the photocopies were implemented as a business idea, and then. Ten years later, every single office in the world had one, right? So it is the, the great majority of amazing commercial products are new applications of existing technologies. And, uh, and that's where I basically realized that knowledge transfer is so powerful. You don't need to reinvent the wheel every time. And in machine learning, that is actually how the machine learning evolves so fast. It's a field that just, because people are so open. And, and this is the same with entrepreneurship in the, the hotbeds of entrepreneurship are places in which people are not jealous of their ideas. And then you realize, yes, that ideas, when you're a creative person, there is no need for you to be jealous with your ideas. It doesn't matter if Joe or Pete or Sam take one of your ideas or an idea that is very similar to yours or whatever and runs with it because you don't have time to 
follow every possible lead or every possible idea that you have in your mind. And so when everyone, when you have a community, you can assemble a community of creative indiv individuals that are not afraid of sharing ideas, then you have the potential for some exponential growth. And that is what the machine learning community has achieved and accomplished. And so that is something that it would be very nice also to accomplish. The new generation is significantly more partial to these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you see it now they, with having GitHub repositories and everyone has this public open... Which are just shared yeah. places for software, people who are developing code. Yeah, um, and you can clone any so one solution and start with that, and then people realize that actually there is actually you have your science becomes sure. So it is a strange thing because you're like, oh, I need to protect my data so that no one scoops me, right? That's one attitude, but the other one is like, okay, if I have become and develop a reputation for someone that develops excellent code and data products, then you get like as many citations just from people that use your code or your data as the person that was like hoarding those codes or those data hoping for a breakthrough and so and so that is that is a kind of a completely different way of thinking about this and and i love that you bring that up because if you when you when you frame it like that it's almost a perverse way, the, the traditional way of doing science, it's almost a perverse way of thinking about it because what we do as scientists is naturally, we're in it for discovery. We're trying, we're, we're curious, we're intellectually curious. We're trying to generate new discovery about the world around us. And the traditional way of trying to hold your data and your code to yourself is impeding progress, impeding that discovery so that you can be the one to do it. Uh, and so it, it's almost in conflict with the the basis of science, in my opinion. Whereas when your focus is on, okay, we, let's make the most discovery at the at the most rapid pace that we can, that's what the new mentality of, of kind of being open by default embraces. Um, and I'm curious, is that... What, well, what is I mean, yes and no. That? I mean, I think that there is never, there has never been ill intent. People don't hoard their data to keep others away. I think that, I mean, there is, we don't do science just because the goodness of our hearts, right? Every one of us does science because science, they give us something of value. And it, for many of us, and I, I include myself, recognition is one of those things. And I think that the clothes, the closed mindset stems from the desire for recognition. You want to be the first, mm -hmm. right? You send you send um, a spacecraft into orbit, and then you don't share the data with anyone for the first year because you want to be the first. Or you don't want anyone to discover an exoplanet before you, right? Like, uh, what's the name of this uh, exoplanet mission that was very successful? Kepler? The one Kepler, that, yeah. yes, exactly. So they kept their data, they have an embargo, because, oh, God forbid, someone discovers a planet before you, right? You want to be the first, why? Because everyone will know. But I have come to realize that actually, you don't need to be the first, never, to gain recognition. And so you can get that fix, you can become an incredibly impactful scientist and have an age index over the roof, 
age index for for other things <laughs> just gauges how much you've published to, and to what impact. It tries yeah, to so it's, it's a impact. try to gauge your impact. So you, it's kind of like when you when it comes to publications, your currency is how how cited you are, mm -hmm. right? And sure, if you're the first person that does something, most likely that you will get a lot of citations. But if you're also the person that produces something that anyone can use, you will also get a ton of citations, right? If you just think about uh, any of the packages that, that does machine learning or whatever, everyone is using them. Mm -hmm. So the people that made TensorFlow have, have probably like tens or hundreds of thousands of citations and they're doing this software that is open. Anyone can use it for anything, it's right? A, it's a shift in the incentive system. Yeah, um, exactly. That, and that, so, that we're experiencing. So to realize that you can be completely open and there is, it comes at no loss to you. Because first, you still will get all the recognition that you need and value, even though if you were not the first. Uh, and second, the, 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 you will get a lot of impact by being the person that think so think for example and i guess maybe our listeners are not heliophysicists necessarily but there is this one of the first i think efforts to in this direction was a model of the solar wind so we we take maps of the magnetic field of the sun we simulate the solar wind which is basically the 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 the, the, the hot plasma the solar atmosphere that extends into the and fills the entire solar system and there is one particular model that a develop a model developer took a huge step and this was i don't know maybe 10 years ago or more at a time where this mindset was not even like on people's horizons and they made this model available to anyone it's called enlil and through an effort in NASA to create a framework in which people, anyone can run a, a solar wind simulation, anyone, called the Community Coordinated Modeling Center, which is an amazing initiative to should link it in the... Well, I will absolutely. Right? So this, like, it was at the time where people were like, oh, no, this is my MHD code. I'm not going to share with anyone, Right? This person or this team of people, I think there is one particular person that is, that is kind of like being the father of this model, said, okay. I'm sure it was like a terrifying moment when he said, well, I'm going to make my, my full MHD solar wind model public. Anyone can use it. And I'm sure that at some point or other, that person must have feared that someone was going to take all the credit or something run away with it and take the credit. But in the reality, is that I, my guess is that, I mean, I would venture a guess, although I'm not so sure, that the Enlil model is the most cited solar wind model in the world. Hands down. I would agree with that. Thinking about that fear that you mentioned, that must have been present when they those individuals that were developing Enlil had when they were going to make this public and kind of this groundbreaking step have you experienced that fear with, in specific moments in your career? And, and how did you interact with those moments? It happened when I was a student. When I was a graduate student. And you're like, man, I have this paper that I have been working on. 
and someone published something very similar to mine, I think. And I went through this whole completely unnecessary and terrible rabbit hole that I talk with these people, talk with them in a conference, and they beat me to it. Did they steal my idea? Was that I in any way responsible? Will this be in some way the end for me? Um, and I think that's because I think that's maybe it's not something that will happen as much today because we've been it's 15 years from now from that moment. And now I personally think that being the first is completely overrated, especially because a lot of the firsts are proof of concepts and they have a lot of problems and you can be the person to fix those problems. And then you and then you're and you're the one that make them open source. Then you're the one that gets all the citations. The cycles are so short; it doesn't really matter who was first. I don't know. But when I was a, a, well, a student, that was a real fear, and that real I was able to let go of that fear when I stopped doing theory and I started working with data. And it's the perspective of time that is, that has allowed you to see that. And are, are there other things? You know, Taking that same perspective, you know, step back and looking at things across your career, are there other things that once were a big deal to you that stick out that now you think are, are not a big deal, you've changed your thinking on? I think that's the main one. The whole concept of scooping mm -hmm. is such a waste of your time. Mm -hmm. Who's first and who's second? Stupid. There's no absolutely no point in even like spending a minute, a second of your time thinking about that, uh, because you. I realized that there is a. At the time, I had I was not fully aware that science is a, is a so, an extremely social in, endeavor. And, a huge part of your impact actually hinges on how you communicate with people. It doesn't matter if you're far, first, second, or third, or whatever. If, you, if you're generous with your data, if you're generous with your code, if you work in an open source, and if you interact, if you're kind with people and you're a very good communicator, that has been always one of my focus, um, foci. And it's the same as for you. I've seen that. I mean, I've seen like you. If you if you are if you give a lot of value in how you communicate what you do, then you get the recognition. If that's something that makes you tick, in my case it is, you get the recognition that you want. Uh, people acknowledge and value the worth, the value and worth of your work, and so then. When you realize that science is not just putting something in a piece of paper but articulating an entire kind of like strategy that involves both communication in the written form, but also in the spoken form, and then communications one-on-one, -on -one and, and so on and so forth. Then the, the written form is not the thing that makes you lose sleep because it's just an accessory. And, and something that has particularly stuck out to me through my interactions with you is, is how much care and respect and selflessness you put into your interactions with your, the people around you, uh, which I think is, is, is a particularly wonderful quality of yours 
and, and it's, it's not necessarily a common thing. And so I wonder how you think about that and your, you know, is it, do you, do you have a certain approach to how you interact with people? You know, I just, I, you're, you strike me in all of the times that I've, that I've had the pleasure of interacting with you as someone who just really cares about the other person and, and is really selfless in that approach. Well, well, first let me thank you. I think the same, exactly the same about you. Actually. Thank you. Um, but I don't think this is completely selfless. Because, because science is such a social endeavor, it is in your best interest to help those around you and to be kind to everyone. And and kind of like randomly help people around you because they, it is science is at the same it's a very social thing but it's actually our communities are not very big especially heliophysics it's not a big community mm-hmm. so you by being kind then people are kind to you and you foster a culture. Our community actually has a very nice culture. That that is something too. People are generally kind. I actually don't think I'm an exception in that sense. Um, the exceptions in at least in heliophysics are actually the people that are downright nasty. Mm. And um, and so the kindness for me it is both being the change I want to see in the world at the same time as investing into my future right you when you treat people around you like human beings and it's so easy it's just so easy you just need to talk with them and understand them listen to them ask them about themselves and just just be I don't know just be randomly kind with them it doesn't take that much more effort than the opposite or not doing anything at all. And then you, it just reflects back on you because you arrive to a place and you're welcome. I have been invited to be part of teams because I help people just get along, right? And you develop a reputation for that. It helps you too. Right, it opens it opened a door for me. Randomly, being randomly kind to people around me, regardless of their statue or stage of their careers and things like that, has opened clearly opened opportunities for me. Right, it's like ah, oh, let's get this guy because not only this is guy good, right? Everyone is good. Everyone can. Everyone is good. I think that. All human beings, it just takes practice. Whatever you apply yourself, if you practice, you can become good at. But, so that is like, but this guy is not only good, but it's it's nice to have him around, mm. right? And it can help us communicate, for example. That's one of the things that I like to do, help people communicate. So I understand what you're trying to say. The other person is trying to say something else. And I understand where the miscommunication is happening. 
So I love to be the person that is like, oh, I, I think that what this person is trying to say is this and putting in the language of the other one and find this. Uh, so anyway, it, it, is, it is all tied to that. It's not selfless. Uh, it gives me pleasure. I love it. It gives me joy to interact with people. And it gives me pleasure when I see someone after so many years and it's like, hey, right? It's like students that were undergrads and I met them later in a conference and I have forgotten about them that they remember me. Yeah, that's cool. They're like, I met you in this thing and you sat with me and we had this lunch and we talked and I don't remember anymore because there are so many people now that I cannot keep them all in my head. But still, it's amazing when you run into someone and that person it's like, you told me this thing. Thank you for that. Or things like that. That's such an impactful interaction. Yeah. And I, it's an important message, and I appreciate you for, for bringing it here. And I want to be cognizant of your time, and I thought, as it might happen, uh, we would we would uh, lose track of time and, and just end up talking, and this has been really wonderful. So we'll ha- we're going to have to have you on a, another a part two episode. But I want to get to the last segment of the show, and I think this is a good time to do so. We do a kind of a lightning round of... Four quick questions um, for you to to answer, uh, just kind of in a, brief, in a brief format. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, with the first, what is one book that you feel has impacted you, unlike anyone else? And I know we talked about the Cosmos book that you were able to read when you were fourteen, but are there others as well? There are so many, but I can tell you another one. Momo. Momo. Momo is a children's story. Written by a German author, Michael Ende, that writes children's stories that are really meant for grown-ups. And anyway, long story short, it's about this girl who is amazingly generous with her time and can listen and by listening brings the best of her people around her. And in this city, suddenly arrive these people called the the gray men, and they are actually uh, trying to steal people's time. And they steal people's time by convincing them that they should save their time. And so what happens is that in the city, people start getting obsessed with time. And they're trying to save as much time. Time is money. Time is money. And they try to save time. Everything they do, they say try to save time. But no matter how much time they save, they never have enough because the gray men take it away from them. And so it is a fascinating reflection on your attitude towards time and how that completely changes how you perceive the reality and how when you obsess about time, you realize that you never have enough. But in reality, you actually had a, a lot of time. So anyway, that book. How apt. Thank you. Number two, what passion outside of your own field has most importantly helped set your trajectory? Music. Yes, music. Because Do you still play the flute? No, no. I not. I, since I, my daughter was born, I was not played much. I have tried to pick up the ukulele. It's, a, cool. it's a, an amazing instrument. I will recommend it to anyone that has any interest in music and they have never done it. But anyway, communication at any level is a performing art. Whenever you deliver a presentation in front of an audience to present your science, 
this is performing art, not unlike playing music in front of other people. And so I use a lot of the things that I learn as a someone that performs in a concert, a piece of music, um, to the way way I am a public speaker. I love that you bring that up. I have a, a I do a five song curated playlist every Friday called Five Cuts Fri- Five Cut Fridays, and I have each of my guests put together a five song playlist. Uh, and so I'm, I'm I'm eager to see what yours will be, and we'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay. So number three, what is your latest and most consuming passion, or what is making your heart sing right now? Oh my God. I am. I play video games. That has always been one of my favorite things to do. Cool. Um, but I am so busy. I have not been able to play much lately. Right. Um, I. I think that the most important thing in the world are people. And. I've realized that the, in this moment, every little minute that I don't have that I don't spend trying to bring all these uh, projects and things that I'm doing into fruition, I just spend with my family. So I will say that perhaps, even though I am a computer gamer, that has been one of my biggest passions. I guess my family is now that which takes all the time that I don't spend working. Okay. And the final question, what is one thing that you have truly and fully screwed up oh my god <laughs> I don't know though my life has been a very forgiving life and so even when I think I've made mistakes I have been able to recover I actually think that as you go through life you, you prove yourself time and again how resilient you are and how you you can recover from a lot of things with and without help. If you have help, you can recover from almost anything. And so, and because I was grow, I grew up, the, the Catholic mindset in, in, at least in Colombia, is that you never understand the reason for things, but ultimately there's like everything happens for a reason. And I never, I, one day, this is one of those revelations is that you realize that what actually that does to you is that it gives you control of your own narrative. And so whenever you screw up Rogerly, if you have live in this mindset where there must have been a reason for me to do that, then, 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 then now even the worst screw-ups are not screw-ups because there is always something of value that you take. But anyway, if you take it something like this out of context, perhaps breaking up, breaking up with my girlfriend the first time, now who now is my wife. So okay. that was a mistake, <laughs> <laughs> a bad mistake, I think, but I was able to thankfully recover from that and now we're together, so all is good. Excellent. Well, Andres, this has been thoroughly enjoyable as it always is to talk with you so thank you very much for being on the podcast and and uh, look forward to, to more to come thank you thank you for the invitation